Good evening. How are you? Uh, should we try that one more time? How are you? Good. Excellent. Um, someone's got to bring me on a little table and set my laptop off for me because uh, that would really help. But before I speak to you tonight, um, I want to discharge a holy responsibility. In my office in Whitney in Oxfordshire, where one lives now, and one has had to learn to enunciate and pronounce and speak English properly, but um, on my office wall, uh, this particular piece of memorabilia hangs, and uh, you will see the numbers 428,856 signatures. Now, five years ago, I went to the United Nations because at that stage, there was an iniquitous piece of legislation being brought before the UN Council, which effectively would have made it impossible for Christians living in the persecuted regions to worship without fear of intimidation, tantamount, it would have zipped the mouths of Christians right across the nations of the world. And uh, I met with one of Ban Ki-moon's associates, uh, who was previously the Minister of Justice for Croatia, so he understood something about conflict. But there was a very seminal moment in our conversation where he said, uh, it's amazing that you're here. And I said, yes, it is, because I asked you seven times if I could come and see you. And he said, well, life is busy, but let's put that to the side for a moment. He said, you know, this matter is complicated. And I said, yes, it is. And he said, it's potentially divisive. And I said, yes, it is. He said, what's more profound for me is that we never hear from you Christians. We never hear from you Christians. Now, amazingly, this petition uh, effectively demolished that piece of legislation. It was taken off the statute books, never to come back, uh, according to those who had responsibility for it. And it actually does prove that there are moments and times when Christians should actually raise their voice. And unfortunately, we have been sleeping for far too long because we have been under the pretense that we are, in actual fact, a majority and we haven't learned the dynamics of how to function as a minority. We live in a post-Christian culture, and because of that, our liberties are being eroded, and I don't want to talk about the United Kingdom, that's not my context. But I come to you with a very special mandate uh, tonight from leaders in the Middle East who it's been my privilege to serve for over 20 years. As we were worshiping, I was thinking about the Armenian Baptist Church in East Aleppo, and one of the real privileges of ministering in Syria and with Syrian leaders that every pastor has an angelic name. And the leader of the Armenian Baptist Church in Aleppo is called Pastor Seraphim. What a beautiful thought to sit under the ministry of an angel. And indeed he is. He's been there for 19 years and he will not leave. His day is uh, punctuated by violence, and God alone knows what has been happening to him in these last weeks. But the rhythm of his life is basically that the curfew comes at seven, and he lives underneath the church, in the catacombs underneath the church, and he doesn't come out until 9 a.m. He opens the front door of the church and receives people until seven in terms of pastoral ministry. But there's something profound happening in Aleppo. And I, I want to share this with you. It's not particularly my subject tonight, but in a sense it is. Because on Sundays today, 300 people will have met to worship our Lord Jesus. 
and be lost in awe and wonder at who he is. They would pour their lives out in a way that you and I fully don't comprehend. Because those who worship will be the ones who have not been able to go. They're 70, 80, 90 years of age. This morning, they will have walked through sniper alleys in risk of their lives to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what emptying yourself out in worship is all about. But the church that meets in Aleppo today is not the type of church that this pastor has ever fully understood because his church now is constituted of Syriac Orthodox Christians that have been there in Syria for hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of years since Jesus brought revelation to his personhood through his disciples to the people of Syria. And so the church is constituted of Syriacs, Catholics, Protestants, Pentecostals, Baptists, and they meet because they have somehow had a revelation that Jesus prayed that they would be one. So for hundreds, if not thousands of years, they've been hiding behind historic prejudice and religiosity and doctrine, and it's taken hell to come to earth to break down those structural dogmas and bring the church together. And it is a beautiful, beautiful symbol of unity and prayer and passion and worship, a light, a candle in the darkness. That's happening all over Syria. It's happening all over Lebanon, as you'll hear in a moment. But when the killing stops, when the warriors have stopped and run out of energy or money, what's going to happen? And we've been spending the last two years sitting at the feet of Middle East leaders saying, what do you want us to do? You know, we could slap some kind of funny branding over the top of it and come up with something that's really sexy that will capture the imagination of people. But this is what they've asked us to petition for at the United Nations. The right to equal citizenship. Why are they pleading for that? It's because they've never had it for 2,000 years. Dignified living conditions for Christians across the Middle East, particularly in Iraq and Syria. Why are they pleading for that? It's because they have never known the reality of it. They've always been fourth-class citizens. And even more profoundly, they're asking for a prominent role in reconciling and rebuilding society. Christians at the table of the reformation of those countries that have never known peace. I, as an emissary of the persecuted church, I'm sharing a vision that we want to raise one million voices from Christians around the world that care enough. You know, 1 Corinthians 12 concludes with some thoughts about the body, that when one part of the body hurts, the whole body hurts. Now, this is a very simple, practical step that you can do something, we believe, of the most profound magnitude that the voices of Christians inside the persecuted church and outside the persecuted church will plead that UN intervenes. I'd like to invite you tonight to make sure that you don't leave the building without signing this. I don't think that you need an incentive, but our mission, Open Doors, was started by a Dutchman called Brother Andrew 
And he wrote this piece of classic literature called God's Smuggler. It's about a man who lived in obedience and did exactly what God told him to do against his better will, but he smuggled Bibles into Poland and Czechoslovakia. He never could have conceived that today that we would be working in 50 nations with a thousand staff doing some of the scariest stuff that I might get to talk to you about tonight. Last year, we smuggled over three and a half million Bibles. If you want to know what three and a half million Bibles look like, look up a picture of the Amazon warehouse for Christmas, and that's what three and a half million units look like. We started a quarter of a million businesses for Christians that have lost everything. We've trained a quarter of a million pastors to help them stand in the fire of persecution. We stand, stood in the courts of hundreds of judicial processes pleading for clemency for Christians. And now we've awoken as an advocacy ministry speaking up for those who have no voice. And by default, not because we wanted it, we've had to become a humanitarian aid and relief organization because that's what the persecuted church have asked us to do. Here is his story. It's of such inspiration. I've brought a copy, I hope, for every one of you. I love you just to take it home. If you've got one, take one and give it away to somebody else. You know, this book makes me think not only of the beauty of the worship that we've been entering into, but there's a fundamental principle that the safest place on God's earth is to be in a place of obedience. And um, before I talk about the subject that I really came here to talk about, uh, just in the worship, I was praying for people that I dearly love because over 20 years of doing this work, I have a big family around the world. And the Holy Spirit led me to think about Vietnam. And I was sent there uh, several years ago on a mission because nine churches had experienced spiritual awakening and there were hundreds of people coming to Christ and the Vietnamese authority got freaked out about it. So they put all of the nine pastors in prison and threw the key away. And uh, so therefore there was just shock across all of those churches and uh, I was sent on a very quiet covert mission. I was chosen because I'm not tall uh, and maybe because I'm a pastor. And uh, I was thinking there just about the ridiculousness of this thought. Um, I flew into Ho Chi Minh City. I went through six security checks. I eventually found my hotel. Uh, on the 12th floor, I settled into my room, slept for two hours. The phone rang, it was my handler. I didn't ever see him. He just said, tomorrow morning at six o'clock, go down into reception, and there'll be a woman in a red coat, and follow her, and may God bless you. So I didn't particularly sleep incredibly well that night for some inconceivable reason. But these beautiful songs that we've been singing about, you are my fortress, I put my trust in you. I, I kind of went through the night reading scriptures about fortress because this, is, this was not a part of my reality, not a part of my experience. But I knew that the best place, the safest place in the whole world for me was to be in a place of obedience. And I knew that that's where... I should be. So at six o'clock in the morning, I was there punctually. She was there. 
I later found out that she had been shadowing me from the airport right through to the hotel, to my door, to make sure that I was the right person, that she would take me to my next appointment. I don't know if you know anything about Ho Chi Minh City, but at six o'clock in the morning, there's half a million people and bicycles on the street. It's a killing field. And this woman walks straight out of the rotating doors, straight across the pavement, straight into the middle of 500,000 bicycles and motorcycles. And she looked over her shoulder, and I didn't know anything to do, so I just launched myself off the edge of the pavement into this ocean, praying in tongues because I thought that was the safest thing to do. And I followed her for a mile and a half. We went into a place of business that's none of your business and went right through it. And then at the uh, other end of the uh, business environment, an open plan unit, uh, she walked up to what looked like to be a door. She opened it, gestured that I go into it, and then she immediately closed the door behind me and locked it. And I was standing in complete blackness and darkness, wondering what on earth am I doing here? when all of a sudden the ceiling of the cupboard opened and a ladder fell down and I looked up and there was a circling torch, five stories turned out to be me climbing five stories of a ladder. I got to the top where the torch was and two really strong arms pulled me clean off the ladder and dropped me onto the floor. And there in candlelight were 20 underground pastors that between them had 3,000 people in their churches. Covert churches, hidden churches, meeting in cellars and warehouses. I later found out that the security services were looking for me because somehow they'd found out that there was someone in doing the type of work that I was doing that had come into the community. This was a time when uh, Vietnam was a particularly locked down situation. It's slightly better today than it was, but it's still quite acutely different, difficult. And we talked for the rest of this day as friends, as pastors together, about how to disciple people in the context of persecution. Because it is an uncomfortable truth. If we could have the first image, that would be really quite helpful. So grateful to Steve for giving me the provocation to speak about this incredible subject of love come down. I said to the morning congregation, I'm launching a new app here at C3 tonight. It's called the Paper Bible. <laughs> and I love this new app because you can touch it and stroke it and you can color it in. And because I'm old now, I've photographed where the various important bits are. Um, but may the Lord help you turn your app on and uh, find the gospel to John in the first chapter. And I want to dedicate this sermon as it is over the next 30 minutes to those underground pastors in Vietnam. And basically what I'm going to share with you tonight is the fundamental lessons that they taught me about how to form a disciple in a dysfunctional, uh, imitatory, uh, intimidatory environment. This has got to be one of the most beautiful portions of scripture. The book of John actually is an art gallery of pictures and that makes it even more easy to remember. Reading from the first verse, in the beginning was the word and the word was God. 
and the Word was God, and He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. This is quite a complex little thought, but in the language of the Bible, actually, in our language, it's the light is not put outable. And that gives great courage to persecuted Christians because you may not know that the New Testament was written by persecuted Christians for persecuted Christians in the context of persecution. What on earth does that mean? That means that persecution in the New Testament was acutely normal. That's why in today's persecuted church, persecuted believers adore the Bible because that is their gravitas, that is their divine satnav, that creates the context within which they have the authority to do what they do and also to survive in the midst of the repression and persecution that visits it because for them persecution is normal. You might like to know this other rhetorical thought then, that the persecution of Christians is not abnormal. It's the absence of the persecution of Christians that's abnormal. And so often, many of us here in the free world, we don't understand persecution because we never experienced it in the first place. There's all sorts of pernicious thoughts going on in our country right now about the Islamization of our parliament. It's absolutely nonsense. It's statistically improbable, and it never will happen. But we are experiencing marginalization in our country right now, and it is pernicious. And I don't fear the Islamization of the United Kingdom. I think the people that we should fear are the fundamentalist secularists who are dismantling the values that have built this society and culture. But the persecuted church has so much to teach us. They actually... I think, inspire us to read our Bibles differently. They certainly teach us how to pray differently. And the way that they live their lives is hugely inspirational, as I hope that you'll get a glimpse of in a few minutes if I shut up and stick to the thing that I'm supposed to say. Verse 6, there came a man who was sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world and through the world. And though the world was not made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, not of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling with us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Love came down. That's why John came. That's why Jesus came. The love of the Father. I enjoyed that. Now, comedically, Milton Jones, uh, 
a very witty man, said, Christianity is like a Cornish pasty. There's something in it, but it's difficult to find out actually what it is. You know, that's so true. I think we've settled for religiosity rather than relationship with God. Actually, religiosity is a lot easier than relationship with God if truth is to be told. But thinking then of the fundamentals about what it means to become a disciple of Jesus, I've been somewhat bemused at the renaissance of Elvis Presley. Good golly, Miss Molly, you know, they're actually doing Elvis with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. And um, when Elvis died on the 16th of August, 1977, if indeed he is dead, <laughs> there was 170 Elvis impersonators. And after he died, there was a sociological uh, phenomena happened. By 1987, the number of Elvis impersonators had grown to 65,000. Now, by the year 2000, it's estimated that this number had become 85,000 Elvis impersonators. From Cambridge to Chiang Mai to Honolulu to Ho Chi, I actually saw an Elvis impersonator in Ho Chi Minh City. <clears throat> now, if you project this mathematical theorem to the year 2043, there will be 9,447,645,907 Elvis impersonators. This is coming from the excellent resource of Wikipedia and Elvis. Uh, oh yes, the plural of Elvis is, I am informed by Wikipedia, Elvi. So the population of planet Earth by 2043 is slightly less than 9,447,645,907 Elvis impersonators, which means that by the year 2043, everybody will be an Elvis impersonator. <laughs> Ironically, in Australia, there is a church called the First Presbyterian Church of Adelaide, where they meet and pray for the return of the king and they have weekly Bible studies to discuss the intellectual significance of Elvis' songs. What do you make out of Don't You Step on My Blue Suede Shoes? I, I just don't get it. But tonight, in this place, we've gathered to give permission to the real King of Kings and Lord of Lords to speak to us. These Elvis impersonators are weird, truly remarkable. Would you let them into your church, Pastor? <laughs> I don't know, but he's giving it some real welly there. But in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, it talks about this concept of being imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now, what does that look like in the context of the persecuted church world? It's, it's not an easy subject. But I meet uh, so many pastors that just took their inspiration from the scriptures and they chose 12 capable individuals and they just poured their lives into them. And then they started to delegate responsibility. Now, I'm on a little mission also as I preach. I ask pastors, who are your 12 disciples? 
and can I help you? Pray, can I pray for you that you'll raise up 12? Because we don't have a culture of discipleship making. Why does the persecuted church have a culture of disciple making and we don't have one in our world? It seems to me to be a, something of a false dichotomy and a serious lack of understanding of one of the key things that Jesus asked us to do and what he modeled in actual fact. Now in the Greek, the word is methetes. Could you say that back to me? One, two, three. I think you could say that a little bit more enthusiastically if you don't mind. One, two, three. And the word itself has these fundamental four building blocks which set out the framework of what I watched these men do with their disciples. Now, I'm not talking about uh, fuller theologically trained pastors who are highly educated. I'm talking about men that have been spending most of their lives in the fields, but their inspiration is this black book. They have no other authority, no other pretext. This is how they do it. And for them, they're looking for these qualifying criteria in the lives of disciples. Why am I talking to you about this? Because I'm trying to provoke you to get into a mindset and mode where you are pliable to become disciples that are effective. I know this is what Steve wants. He gives his life for it. But sometimes... You can bring a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. And I'm hoping to plant seeds of uh, thirst within you tonight, that when you see this stuff plugged in to the reality of persecution, you know why the people behave the way that they do when they're confronted with persecution. I don't know whether persecution is going to come to the United Kingdom. Far more learned people than I are saying we are on the way because this issue of marginalization is part of the continuum, usually when you see it around the world. And so high commitment, active learning, imitation, and living in community. You know, we don't do that well in the West, but actually disciples are best forged, hanging out together, eating together, learning from one another, uh, challenging one another, provoking one another uh, in the fertile soil of a local church. Now, one of my mentors, I've become so old now, and I've stepped away from the conservatism of the culture that I grew up, they'd be terrified if they even knew that I was reading Henri Noyen uh, in the place that I come from. But this is indisputably true, that the further the outward journey takes you, the deeper the inward journey needs to be. And pastors and disciples of Jesus in the persecuted church world, I see it again and again and again. There is a profundity of depth, a dependency upon the word. They actually do understand what trust is, and they actually understand the reality of fortress. For six years, I was a chief executive of Richard Wormbrand's ministry, Release International, I stepped out of 25 years with Youth for Christ and was propelled into the world of the persecuted church and I knew nothing. And I made so many mistakes. And I actually think, in retrospect, that I had to reimagineer. I had to be re-educated about my theology and my doctrine. Why? Because the very first time that I went into the persecuted church, a man stood in front of me and... Uh, he said, 
and his 12-year-old was standing beside him. And he told me, fighting back the tears, that last week she'd just been gang raped. And he said to me, uh, what would Jesus say? Because all that I know is that he's asked me to behave like him. And that means that I need to forgive those who desecrated my child. You know, I felt as though I needed to kneel at his feet because what I had been taught, all that I had learned was not robust enough to be able to deal with that kind of issue. Richard's writing was so helpful to me as I stumbled through this world of brokenness and the tragedy and the amazing triumph of Christians who were hot-wired into the pulse of that black book. God is the truth. The Bible is the truth about the truth. Theology is the truth about the truth about the truth. And a good sermon is the truth about the truth about the truth about the truth. It is not the truth. The truth is God alone. And around this truth, there is a scaffolding of theologies and words and of exposition. But none of these is of any help in times of suffering. It is only the truth himself who is of help. And we have to penetrate through sermons, through theological books, through everything that is words, and be bound up in the reality of God himself. I've told in the West how Christians were tied to crosses for four days and for four nights. And the crosses were put on the floor. And other prisoners were tortured and made to fulfill their bodily necessities upon the faces and bodies of the crucified ones. I have since been asked, which Bible verse helped and strengthened you in those circumstances? My answer is no Bible verse was of any help at all. It is sheer cant and religious hypocrisy to say, this Bible verse strengthens me or that Bible verse helps me. Bible verses alone are not meant to help. We knew Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. When you pass through suffering, you realize that it was never meant by God that Psalm 23 should strengthen you. It is the Lord, it is the Lord who can strengthen you, not the Psalm that speaks of him doing so. It is not enough to have the psalm. You must have the one about whom the psalm speaks. We also knew the verse, my grace is sufficient for you. But the verse is not sufficient. It is the grace that is sufficient and not the verse. Of course, Richard is not saying that the memorization of scripture is of no value. But actually, have you... Uh, have you read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis? I like to show off because I love to celebrate Irish theologians. But there's this um, lovely book, this story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And there is a moment in it when Sarah goes into the wardrobe and she pulls back the fur coats. And she enters a world, a winter world, that is profoundly different. And I want to kind of in a sense, pull back 
the coats tonight, and I want to ask you to walk with me into this reality of encounter uh, with the persecuted church. Very quickly, we want to go to the scriptures now. We're going to do something African now. Would you just stand up with me? When you preach in African churches, when you read the scriptures, everybody stands up out of respect. I think that's a cool thing, you know? I really do. So we're going to read these verses together. One, two, three. Rather, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. Do be seated. Again in the scriptures, 2 Corinthians 4 verses 1 through 9. Take a look at it. I'm going to finish speaking in 10 minutes from now. Is that okay? I know it's Sunday night, but this could be revolutionary as you step into the wardrobe and see this new encounter. Willard, Dallas Willard. Have you come across Dallas Willard? Compulsory reading for intelligent 21st century Christians. Character is formed through action and is transformed through action, including carefully planned and grace-sustained disciplines. So therefore, things like solitude, prayer, fasting, scriptural memorization are right at the top of the tree, not only for persecuted Christians, but for people like you and me. And here's a great uh, thought from John Coles. Christianity isn't a theory. Christianity is not an abstraction. Christianity is not a philosophy or a propositional truth. It's a subjective, transformational, experiential truth. That's what I was banging on about this thing about knowing grace and this kind of complete and utter reformation of who we are and how we think. Willard approaches the issue of persecution in a very desperately confrontational way. He said this thing about, you know, the, the sheep and the goats and the wolves and all of that stuff. He transports it into the 21st century and said, being a Christian in the world, it would be like butterflies against machine guns. It's very graphic language, but it is true truth. When we need to find a way of holding on to God when it seems as if God has let go of us. I want to tell you about my favorite pastor in Lebanon. He's got a beautiful name as Pastor, Pastor Jihad. What a stonking name for somebody in that part of the world. Many of us, because we're historically illiterate, don't remember that Lebanon was invaded by Syria for a period of 12 years, as I understand it. And the Lebanese were subjected to dreadful torture and violence. And there were children's militias of which Jihad was a part. And he, so by the age of 12, he was a sniper and he was shooting Syrians. He was captured, put into a prisoner of war camp. He was tortured and violated. But in prison, he met another Christian. 
he said, who looked like Jesus. And he wanted to be like Jesus. When the war started in Syria six years ago, by this stage, he's a pastor of a tiny church in the Becca Valley. When you're at his church, you're 45 kilometers from Damascus, and you can smell the munitions of war coming over the mountains. He saw this human snail of refugees, and in his black book, he couldn't get away from the story of the Good Samaritan. So much pain in his life. He'd never fully come to terms with the violence that had been subjugated against it. But he clothed himself with the word of God. He submitted himself to the lordship of Jesus. Because love came down, he could not deny that he was in the right place at the right time. So he opened his doors. He started to feed the people. Then he met the children. The children were uneducated. So he turned uh, a small room, um, no more than 30 people, and started the school. I was there three times last year. The school is now 300. I saw a situation that I have not seen in my whole life, where I looked at a meeting room half the size of this, and on the left side, there was uh, every woman had her jeep on. On the right-hand side, every man had a business suit on, and every one of them were followers of Jesus. And when the worship happened, they raised their hands to heaven, and they fell on the floor because love had come down in the form of a little church, and they'd opened their hearts to the Lord Jesus. Costly, costly, costly love. Every member of the church had been brutalized. Every one of them had been in the siege of that community, bombarded for days consistently, 24-7, with shells falling from the Syrian army. And there Jesus was asking them to pour out their love and their adoration to Jesus. You see that hidden behind the walls of the church is a Baptist church for years, and it's taken the war to break down the reserves, and they're seeing people that they would never have met before. There's now a hospital, there's now a school. I met the elder responsible for emergency aid, and he had 179 calls waiting to be answered. It's inconceivable. Now, this is my gift to you in the last three minutes. This is the oldest icon in the whole world. It's called Jesus and his friend. This is part of the heritage of the Syriac church. Uh, and uh, it hangs in the Louvre Gallery in Paris. And the man on the left is called Father Manus, one of the first Syriac martyrs. Can you see the arms of Jesus snugly around his right shoulder? This is probably 300 years after the resurrection of Jesus. You've maybe never studied iconography, but the eye of Jesus, I should be able to, can you see that eye? That eye is looking out at the world, and that eye is looking at his beloved martyr and disciple. Jesus has all of the revelation. Father Manus has only a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of understanding. 
But the Lord Jesus, in his compassion and mercy, has put his arms around his friend. Quintessentially, this is the most beautiful example of what discipleship is. Jesus putting his arms around every willing disciple and journeying with them. That's the promise of the scriptures. I will never leave you or forsake you. Out of the shambles that is happening in the Middle East, this is the noon sign. This is Arabic. It was sprayed on every house in Mosul on the 24th of June, 2014, when Christians were given 24 hours to flee. The pastor who told me about this looked me straight in the eye and he said, is there enough evidence for there to be a noon sign sprayed on the outside of your house, Brother Eddie? I hope you're inspired. I hope that you're touched. I'd like just to pray that God would perform a divine heart transplant here tonight and help you move into alignment with that provocative thought that when one part of the body hurts, the whole body hurts. Maybe the worship team would like to come and join me. When I was growing up, I went to Sunday school three times on a Sunday because that's what they do to you in Ireland. And uh, we were taught a chorus, and the words are, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are great. He is great, and he is strong. It's a very simple truth, but the persecuted church loved to sing it. You know, Jesus loves his family. He loves his children. That's why love came down. When I pray in the Middle East, it's very common for people to put their hands over their hearts as a sign of surrender. You might like to do that. So Holy Spirit of God, I invite you to come into this place now and bring that transformation that we would open our hearts to our persecuted brothers and sisters who have taught us so richly tonight they are part of our family and I pray Lord here that you would do a beautiful work and transform our hearts and open our minds to this family that is truly yours give us hearts of compassion, open up our minds to what we can do practically to serve our brothers and sisters in their Gethsemane, I pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you so much that you came down. Thank you for Christmas, thank you for Advent. Thank you that you are called Emmanuel. Visit us now, Lord, with your passion and your power. I pray, and uh, may some of the things that we've heard in this place tonight inspire us and provoke us to walk closely with you in the full knowledge that if we ask you to be our Lord and our Savior, that you will put your arms around us and walk with us. 
and that you will use us for your glory. We thank you for your word and for your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.